Sorry, we were a moment or two late getting started. I appreciate you being here. I'm Evan Smith. I'm the Editor-in-Chief and CEO of the Tribune. Hope you've enjoyed the day so far. We welcome you. We welcome you back after lunch. Uh, I'm pleased to welcome you to this all-star panel about whether politics and the governance in this country are broken at the moment. Spoiler alert, they are. <laughs> and what, if anything, can be done about it? The panel's title, Can the Center Hold, refers not just to the ideological center, but to the core principles at the center of any representative democracy. Our challenge for the next hour will be to better understand where we are, how we got here, and where we go from here. Let me introduce our distinguished guests, any one of whom could fill the time alone on this important topic. On my left is Bill Bradley, served as a United States Senator from New Jersey from 1979-1997, and was a Democratic, they clapped already, look at that. Was a Democratic candidate for president in 2000. Previously, he played 10 years of professional basketball with the New York Knicks, during which time the team won two NBA championships. There we go. I'm going to introduce the five of you, then we're going to say thank you and get off the stage. That's what's going to happen. I can just tell. Uh, he was also an Olympic gold medalist, having played for the U.S. in 1964. <laughs> How about I'll just go shorter? Does that work no, for you? Good. good. Okay. That's good. fine. Uh, uh, okay. Kay Bailey Hutchison spent nearly 20 years representing Texas in the United States Senate. She finished first. <laughs> Finished first among a field of 24 candidates in a 1993 special election to succeed Lloyd Benson. John M. Huntsman Jr. was the U.S. Ambassador to China, appointed by President Barack Obama from 2009 to 2011, uh, when he resigned to explore an eventual run as a Republican candidate for the White House in 2012. From 2005 to 2009, he was the governor of Utah. Thank you. Thank you. Ron Kirk was the United States Trade Representative and a member of President Obama's cabinet from 2009 to 2013, serving as his principal trade advisor, negotiator, and spokesperson on trade issues. Previously spent six years as the mayor of Dallas and a little less than a year as Secretary of State in Texas. <laughs> and finally, Kasim Reed is the mayor of Atlanta, Georgia, first elected to lead his state's most populous city in 2009, re-elected to a second four-year term last year, previously served 11 years in the Georgia legislature. Great to be with all of you. So I want to start with the premise that I mentioned earlier, the general agreement that we're in a bad place and in a bad way in terms of politics in this country being broken, whatever side you're on. Uh, I want to know your individual perspectives on what you've observed. Obviously, you come at this from different sides. We have different generations of politics represented up on the stage and different sets of experience. Senator Bradley, you're the grizzled veteran of the group. You got in and out of the Senate before things really changed, though I'm reminded that you did serve in the last couple of years in the Congress in which Newt Gingrich shut down the right. government. Um, uh, Senator Hudson, Ambassador Huntsman, uh, Ambassador Kirk, you straddle the old world and the new. And uh, Mayor Reed, you've only known the new world. So we have kind of a nice bit of parody, I think, up here. Senator Bradley, what's happened? Okay. How did we get here? Well, first of all, I think that people ought to know that Evan asked me to come as the only person. Uh, and really? I asked uh, That's news. Kay, I asked Kay, and she said he asked her to come. As, as the, the only, only person, person. right. Yeah. <laughs> so, that, that's just the way we're going to go. That's the facts, okay. Uh, what, what happened? How, how did we get here? What's the situation like right now? I think we got here because the role of money dramatically increased in the years that I was in the Senate. Uh, when I ran for the Senate in 1978, uh, I spent $1.6 million for my primary and general election. And in year 2000, for that same seat, John Corzine spent $63 million. Money dominates the whole process. I think that's one reason. Yep. Second, there's a polarization due to the gerrymandering in the country that creates only about 40 competitive congressional seats. Uh, all the rest are 60-40, 55-45 Republican-Democrat, which means that you don't have to fear a general election, you fear a primary election, so you appeal to the extremes, on left or right. And the result is that we, and you put that in a media environment that's hyper, and it is ideological because of the way the television systems work. I mean, the the subscription-based cable televisions who play to a particular type of American, 
the most extreme, the more uh, subscribers they get. And you have why we got to where we are today. Ambassador Huntsman, does that sound right to you? Well, that sounds totally right. Uh, money in politics is a huge problem. Super PACs are an abomination, and nobody wants to talk about it as such. Uh, gerrymandering, uh, and I saw as governor trying to get my legislature to create an independent redistricting commission. They threw it right in the garbage can. Yep. Uh, so we wake up to 70% of the country that's predictably red or blue. Republican, Democrat, MSNBC, Fox News. And they're not even competitive, these seats. So if you take competition out of politics, it's like taking competition out of anything else. What are you left with? Not much of anything. So that's a huge problem. But I, but I would just end with this, and that is uh, another huge problem is we don't have any idea where we're going as a country. We don't even have a strategy. Uh, you talk to people on Capitol Hill, they'll give you nonsensical verbiage. But I've lived in four countries during my lifetime. Only one of them doesn't have a national strategic agenda. Yep. Where are we going to go? This one. So uh, we can't even reach high enough to say, where do we want to go and what goals do we want to pursue, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat? We've done it before. Yep. We put a man on the moon. We've completed the Human Genome Project. We've ended the Cold War. In each case, it took bipartisan collaboration. But you've got to know where you're going before you can even begin a coherent political dialogue. Senator Hutchison and uh, Ambassador Kirk are both from Texas. You know Texas politics well, and what we hear from Senator Bradley and Ambassador Huntsman about redistricting probably rings true. We have a state that will have more than 200 elections on the ballot this fall. There are probably fewer than 10 that are competitive. We wonder why people don't participate in politics. They have no reason to be, to be out participating. So, S Senator, is, that, is, that, is it redistricting that is part of the problem here? I think redistricting, certainly, uh, we all are familiar with gerrymandering. Yeah. But I want to put another element in. Please. And that is the primary system. Um, if we are going to have the, the primaries the way they are today, in Texas uh, especially, um, you do have the appeal to the very narrow primary uh, voters. People who want a different track yep. need to vote in primaries. I'm not saying just vote in the Republican primary. I'm saying look at the competitive races that you care about, and you need to vote in that primary so that you can uh, ask for a broader appeal. Yep. The Louisiana primary is an open primary in which the Republicans and the Democrats are all in the on the ballot in November, and if someone gets over 50%, they win. If they don't, there's a runoff after the November So it's election. top two finishers. It's the top two finishers. It can be yeah. two Democrats, two Republicans, or one of each, and that means they have to appeal to, to a broader the, base whole, the broader base. Right. And I think if we reformed the primary systems, it would do as much, if not more, than the redistricting. Ambassador. Well, I don't want to repeat. I agree with everything that's been said. From my perspective, I think the explosion of social media, and Bill, you touched on it a little bit, changes everything. It's real easy, I think, generationally for us to say, well, when we were here, it was better. But it's instructive for me that one of the first groups I had dinner with when I got appointed as USTR were a group of former Benson and Tower staffers who all came together to celebrate my being in the cabinet. And we had this discussion about was it better then or not. One of our good friends, Fred McClure, who Kay knows, made the argument that it may be marginally worse, but because of social media, you didn't know it then. You didn't hear every insult that right. Fritz Hollings hurled on Howard Metzenbaum unless you were sitting on the floor of the Senate. And so there was a little bit of we now all get a peek behind the curtain that you didn't get to. But the other thing is the role of social media in giving more strength to those who are villainous. My first day to the union, I'd love to tell you I remember because it was fun to walk in and it was all of the excitement of being there, but what I most remember was it was the only time in the history of the U.S. Congress, a member of Congress stood up doing a president's speech and called him a liar. And I remember every minute of the Senate turned around and looked at Joe Wilson and John McCain actually called him a name I won't say on stage. And everybody condemned it until the next morning when Joe Wilson said, I raised a million dollars last night on the Internet. 
And back to Bill's point, the, the combination of social media and the angrier you are and the meaner you are, and people seem to reward that. Yeah. And then my third thing is to put a big lens, <laughs> a mirror in front of all of us and say it's us. I mean, I sat there and woke up yesterday because I wanted to see what happened in the election in Scotland. Mm -hmm. And all of us were stunned. I mean, we wouldn't be having this conversation if 85% of Americans got up off our rear ends and went to the polls and voted. Right. And the reality is too many good people are turned off and you don't vote. Right. So, M M Mr. Mayor, you don't have really the backdrop that your fellow panelists do because you got in this much later. You're younger and your experience in politics is much more recent. The world you've known really is this world. Yes, and, and, and I think it's awful. I mean, I think that... <laughs> I think the direction of our federal government, and it's not just in the U.S., globally. Yep. Globally, large national governments aren't functioning well. And what you're seeing around the world is that cities, as a result, are becoming ascendant. And the kind of hyper-partisanship that goes on nationally is not happening in cities. Mm -hmm. Thank goodness. And I think because of that, you're going to see more and more highly talented people put their time, their energy, and their passion in the cities, right. which is where 75 to 80 percent of... So of turn away from D.C. and turn towards cities. Until, until we beat these folks. Yeah. See, I take a different position. I believe things are bad, and, and I was um, talking to President Clinton, and he said that that's something I've been thinking about since uh, last Saturday. He said the subheading for the U.S. Constitution ought to be let's make a deal. And to the extent that leaders... Of, of the Republican Party and the Democratic Party have moved away from this process where it was good to get in a room and get a deal that kept the United States as the leading force for good in the world. Right. And the world is concerned about our ability to continue to lead the world. Yeah. And if we don't beat these folks, Democrats and Republicans, who think compromise is a bad word, the world is going to become de-Americanized. And if you look at the Alibaba offering just the other day, it shows that there is a real opportunity for, um, for America not to be the center of gravity in the world if we can't prove that we can take on fundamental issues like infrastructure investment. Mm -hmm. Used to be completely nonpartisan. Right. Like the capacity of the Congress to pass a budget, to handle our fiscal affairs, right. and to create jobs, which is the real future crisis. So uh, let, me, let me ask Senator. It's uh, pretty uh, bad. Mayor, it's an, it's an excellent tee up of I a like couple of different aspects of this. You know, Senator Bradley, Senator Hutchison. In the Senate, it appears these days, probably across the Congress, there are no longer battles, there are only wars. Things that used to happen, as a matter of course, people of good minds disagree about things, but things like. Um, uh, presidential nominations, uh, passage of a debt ceiling uh, measure, uh, executive authority, congressional, uh, uh, I mean, any of this stuff. I mean, we, we know that there are a series of things that over many, many years did not blow up the building. There were not shutdowns every, or threats of shutdowns. At some point that shifted. Compromise to the mayor's point became a dirty word. Talking to the other side became a dirty word. Senator, when did that happen? What do you, in time, where do you date that to? Um, I date that to the uh, early 90s, uh, when used to be you were a senator for uh, four years, you ran for your election two years. But because of the money issue, you had to be running for election yeah. for four years, six years. So then you would have a senator whose campaign committee said that his colleague was vulnerable on the following three issues, go to the floor of the U.S. Senate, put an amendment down just to get him on the record. Right. No substantive purpose whatsoever. So the process of governing was polluted. That then was exacerbated, I think, when Newt Gingrich came in. Uh, and then we were off to the races. And if people don't realize there is a real opportunity cost to this today. And let me just do, if I can, just tell one quick story. Um, it's around, around um, 1795-96, right? George Washington is president of the United States. The issue comes, what do we do about the debt that was incurred by states in the Revolutionary War? And Alexander Hamilton says, we have to nationalize that debt 
making sure the United States has full faith and credit, and that's the necessity. Thomas Jefferson, the Secretary of State, not a bad cabinet, uh, Hamilton, the Treasury, says, under no circumstance, we're frugal in Virginia. Why should we bail out the spendthrifts in Massachusetts and South Carolina? They loggerheads. Washington said, would you please resolve this? They didn't. I want it resolved. So Hamilton, being the inventive person he was, he and Washington are walking, and he says to Washington, well, um, would you support federal takeover state debt if we move the capital from New York to the banks of the Potomac? And Jefferson said, sure. <laughs> and so a deal was cut and federal assumption of state debts. Now, what's the opportunity cost here? Take a look forward, literally within a decade. Napoleon is fighting a war in Europe. He's fighting a war in the Caribbean. He's depleting resources. He needs money. And what does he decide to do? He says, so one of his aides said, well, sell Louisiana. And so the United States bought Louisiana for $15 million, doubling the size of the country, 12 of which was borrowed, which would never have happened had a deal not been cut. So the question today is, what's the opportunity cost of this division? You don't know what it is right now. But as John said, other countries are moving. Yeah. And we have to be aware of that. Senator, deal-making is not a very uh, a popular thing in the, in the United States Senate these days. And in fact, willingness to make a deal can get you a primary, and it can get you defeated. You know that. That's exactly right. Right. And, and, and <laughs> Even representing your own state can get you defeated. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> to what do you attribute this? Well, I think it is the polarization and the toxicity. Yep. Um, and I think the Senate, which was very carefully crafted to be the adult in the room and the whole uh, balance of powers, um, has lost that role. And one of the things that protected that was, and this is a different issue, but it was the two-thirds rule and the 60% uh, rules, where you really couldn't do anything without a supermajority. Yep. Not just 50, but 60 or um, 75. I mean, that makes a big difference because then you are forced. Rarely do you have a 60 vote um, of one party. Now, you did on Obamacare, and it was passed without one Republican vote, and that has caused problems from the beginning. So you think the reduction of a threshold in the United States Senate, and even the reduction of a threshold as is threatened in the Texas Senate, ultimately mm -hmm. creates more problems rather than less. Oh, definitely, rather I than do. Few, yeah. I definitely. Um, uh, Ambassador Huntsman, Ambassador Kirk, Mayor, you, you work more at the state and local level. You were governor of Utah. You were mayor of Dallas. You are mayor of Atlanta. Is there a difference at, in terms of how this problem manifests itself? Mayor Reed alluded to the fact that in cities, and I would say the same probably in states, you have to get stuff done. You have to. You have to be more pragmatic. Was it your experience that as governor of Utah, you were able to break through some of this because at the state level, it's a partisan office, unlike mayoralties. Well, but you uh, have to get things done. An, an amazing thing occurs the morning after you're elected. You wake up, and first of all, the the complete disbelief that you were elected governor of a state. <laughs> and then you say, my responsibility now includes everybody. Yep. I wasn't elected by a party. Uh, I was elected by a whole lot of other folks, plus my party, and yep. now I represent everybody. You're even governor of the people e who even, voted against you. Even though, even those, and I brought some into my cabinet, as a matter of fact, right. uh, arguing that very thing. But as governor, there's not a more liberating position in the world because there's no place to run or hide. You can't run to the corners of Capitol Hill. You can't engage in tactics and trying to win the news cycle. Yep. You've got to win the strategy. And you've got to articulate to the people of your state where you want to take them yep. in specific terms. And then build the coalitions to make it happen. And everybody watches it play out. You're judged day in and day out. And if it doesn't happen, you're tossed out of office. Yep. This is called problem solving. 
and it's not, a, it's not a complicated thing because every family does this, every business does this, every uni university academic department has to do this. You've got to cut deals, you've got to make things happen. Yep. You work with a budget, you work with people who don't always agree with your point of view, but you have to make things work at the end of the day. That's where we're drawing a, a huge void on Capitol Hill. You talk to governors who have been elected to the Congress, who are sitting in the Senate, and they say, this place sucks. You know, there's nothing to do. I want to go back to being governor again. Right. Why? Because they come from this problem-solving ethos where you're actually doing things for your people. Yeah. Uh, you're, you're creating new ideas. You're testing the marketplace constantly. And on Capitol Hill, we're just not seeing that. So I would say part of our longer-term fix is how do you change the culture, the ethos on Capitol Hill from anger, animosity, and acrimony right. to problem-solving? Yeah. People say, well, that's never going to happen. Of course it can happen. Cultures come and go in Washington all the time. Right. But in order to do that, you have to infuse in people who believe in problem solving and give them something to do. And Am right now that's missing. Am Ambassador, you know that people get elected to the Senate, people, and people are proud to say this, they get elected to not do things. I'm going there to reduce the size of government. No. I'm going there to, to say no. You couldn't have been elected mayor of Dallas for the purpose of going in to not do things. No, and look, I don't want to be duplicitous of, of, what, of what Mayor Reed said, but yeah. we are, we're devolving good or bad, to a nation of city-states for the reason Governor Huntsman yeah. and the mayor said. I got elected mayor. Uh, one of the coolest things that happened to me is Maynard Jackson, who was born in Dallas. Uh, and I, <laughs> my, 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 my first just short uh, historical footnote for you, I was the fifth first black mayor of Dallas, Texas. <laughs> Tom Bradley was born in Calvert, Texas, and moved to L.A. Maynard Jackson was born in Dallas. Willie Brown was born in Mahia. And Emmanuel Cleaver was born in Waxahachie. There's a lesson from that. When you discriminate people with talent, go where they can flower. But Maynard Jackson <laughs> brought me to Atlanta, and I spent two days with him. And he said, look, just remember this. One thing, there is never an acceptable reason to go to your, one of your supporters and say, the Republicans won't let me pick up your trash. You know, if Kay Bailey Hutchinson saying, hey, Houston and Bailey are graduating, we're having a party, I can't say the Democrats won't let me fix your role. The closer you are to a problem, you expect us to solve stuff or you get rid of us. That isn't happening in Washington. Yeah. Um, I am not that hopeful that we are going to infuse the spirit of deal-making um, in Washington. To me, the simplest way out of it, one, both of the parties have outgrown all the ideologies in them. I mean, there is more commonality on this stage than there is between Kay Hutchison and all of the extremes of the Republican Party and me. We need a third party. And if you had a third party, we would all be in it. Well, and you those have, you have a guy. Consider, we would be. I mean, I, I would dare say that you would have what we call moderate conservative. I've been called, what did one of my friends call me, a right-wing Democrat. And you would have the John Huntsman came. And we would capture the center of the American public because right now they are the ones most turned off by the most shrill, extreme, shrill extremes of our parties, and they don't vote. So you end up with this contorted primary system that makes it almost impossible to get a deal done in Washington. But every other mature democracy in the world has hundreds of political parties. Yeah. We're the only one that believes we can fit everybody into a red or blue T-shirt. This is turning into a new label, a no labels meetup. I want no, Governor Huntsman to contain his enthusiasm. But I'm, I'm over here it. saying beat the people. So I just want to be clear. Well, what, I, think that, I think that folks, um, that, that we're going to have to come together and put up politicians who have proved that you can survive working in a bipartisan way. I get beat up all the time because I work with Nathan Deal, who's a Republican governor. Governor, that's Georgia, right. Yeah. And we were trying to deepen the port of Savannah, which is the second biggest economic generator in our state. And when he and I walked into Ray LaHood's office, Ray LaHood needed a minute because he couldn't believe that a Democratic mayor and Republican governor was walking in his office. And I get flack for it. But I believe that the future of politics is about performance. And the one thing that social yep. media does is it eliminates your ability to duck, lie, and dodge and hide your capacity to deliver. People know whether you deliver or not. And the reason that mayors are continuing to be popular is because cities are where hope meets the street, and I have to see you in a grocery store. I don't get yep. to see you for five minutes and disappear for the rest of the year in Washington. Right. But I really think we can't turn away and just hope for a level of bipartisanship 
with the current way the table is set. We've also got to have a hard conversation about having people who believe what we believe beat people who are doing things that we know are hurting America. Yeah. Now, Governor Hunter, or Ambassador Hunter, I, I, this is like, again, this is like exactly your thing right now, right, is to talk about the failure of the parties and to promote the idea that we need either a third party or no more part, whatever no labels ultimately wants, it's to try to address the issue that you're hearing reflected up on this day. Well, I, I think it's very real, and this is, we're a country of disruptors. It happens all the time in yeah. the economic sphere. Uh, you know, and when you have shoe company blue and shoe company red that keeps making the same old boot, uh, nobody wants to buy it increasingly. You're going to have somebody who makes a new shoe, and right. the American people are going to say, I've been waiting for that. What took so long? I think I want to buy it. And that's an inevitable uh, uh, evolution that will likely occur over time, but the barriers are significant. No labels recognizes the, the circumstances for what they are. We have a two-party system. Right. Uh, uh, campaign finance reform is important. Uh, a, a, a gerrymandering is uh, another important issue. Those are long-term, and they need to be worked on. But we need something that's more immediate, and that is where we're trying to marry together real ideas based on a national strategic agenda, a balanced budget, energy self-sufficiency, uh, a, jobs, uh, a, a jobs agenda, uh, and marrying it with a coalition of the willing on Capitol Hill. So right now we have a problem solvers caucus, half Republican, half Democrat on Capitol Hill, that numbers 100 people. It was nowhere a year ago. And it shows how hungry people are on Capitol Hill to associate themselves with an entity that's taking them. But could you get elected, Senator Bradley, could you get elected these days running as a third party or as a no-labels candidate or what have well, you? The party structure makes it almost impossible for that to happen. Uh, when people say third party, they think of Ross Perot, they think of a presidential candidate. Uh, that's not a third party that's ever going to succeed because the, the money difference is too great. It's just not going to succeed. The whole political apparatus is controlled by the FEC, which is half Democrat, half Republican. And guess what? They would take a third party candidate for the presidency and try to smash, smash it. They'd succeed. But keep in mind that the three gentlemen to the left were executives. I don't know a president, whether it was Ronald Reagan, Barack Obama, or anybody in between, who isn't thinking like an executive. They want to get things done. The problem is the Congress. And you will never defeat power except by power. All the stuff hoping this will never happen. And therefore, my modest suggestion is that there be a third congressional party, not presidential, a third congressional party. And it stands for three or four key things. I would say address some of the structural things, like constitutional amendment for uh, campaign finance reform, one or two other things. Recruit 50 people to run in 50 targeted districts in this country, in House seats. Select half of the 50 as ex-military officers, half women, half men, diverse candidates. And say to the American people in those districts, here is, what we, here is the problem with our democracy. It is the Congress. And here are the things that we would do to change that and change our politics. If you want to see things changed, you vote for candidate X in this district. This can be funded by a few extremely wealthy individuals. <laughs> and it would be, uh, uh, you could do the whole thing for about $360 million. People say, oh my god. Well, take a look at what was spent in, uh, in the last election. Much, 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 much more than that. And so this is a six-year strategy. And I believe that it could offer a chance. Because what happens is you got three very specific things. You even reduce it to bill language. And when this, say, 25 are elected, what do they become in the Congress? They're at the fulcrum. Wherever they go determines the outcome of any vote. Somebody comes to those 25, and they have to hang this together. This is the deal being made, basically, right? Yeah. And they have to hang together. Yeah. They say, oh, no, I'm not going to do that. 
unless I have your support for this. Bill, I'd have to say we're about halfway there with no labor <laughs> and the Problem Solvers Caucus on Capitol Hill, which has gone from nobody to almost 100 now. And they've embraced this concept of a national strategic agenda, which are four critical areas that we've discovered through fairly sophisticated polling Republicans and Democrats across the board want to see done. Yeah. And we're missing the electoral component that you have, have added, which I think is very, very important. But we've undertaken this clinical trial of sorts that's never been done before that could be quite interesting. Senator. It also is being done through the gangs in the Senate, the gang of six, the, the gang, gang of, of eight, 12, right. the gang of eight. Right. And that is the loose, um, exactly even number of Republicans and Democrats who agree that unless they agree on an issue or a candidate that's important, uh, it won't go through. But if they do agree, it will. They've done it in, in judicial candidates yep. and other things. And it's along the line of what Bill is saying, but without the electoral component. And the other thing that uh, that concept can do because they, they make this pact and sometimes it's hard to keep. But when Simpson Bowles came out with a way to actually have a balanced budget and the president put it on the shelf and the congressional leaders put it on the shelf, nobody wanted to actually vote on it because they were afraid that something would actually happen and they might lose control. The leaders this is. And um, more than 60 members of the Senate came together for Social Security reform and other budget matters where Republicans gave, Democrats gave. 60 people signed on to that. We still couldn't get it on the still floor. Still couldn't get it done. Still couldn't get it on the floor because the president didn't want it. The Republican and Democratic leaders didn't want it because they didn't want all the things that they might not actually have to do in there. I mean, that was stunning. Yeah. But it's, it's along the concept that of, of what we're talking about. I, I, I didn't want to get into the Congress's fault or this, but I wasn't saying I don't. It was one of the few evenings I was spending an evening with the president because Michelle and the girls had gone and we'd finished the meeting. He said, what are you doing? And I was going home. It was one of the rare weekends I was going home. And he said, I need you to come have dinner with me at the White House. And where I come in, it's the only time I've been on the Truman balcony alone with the president. And he hands me a martini and he says, John Boehner and I just cut a deal. And I know I'm an infuriate Democrats, but, and, and I respect, Kay is one of my dearest friends, so we're dear enough, I'm gonna disagree. It just roils my blood to hear people say, well, Barack Obama sat on Simpson Bowles. John Boehner and, and Barack and President Obama cut several deals. <laughs> could have gotten him through the Senate, but he went back to the House, and after the 2010 elections, they cut his legs off. Simpson and, and, and I know, Bowles. I know but, but I mean, it, did, it didn't matter whether it was. It's not whether it was Simpson Bowles, but the point was they did cut a deal. But the structural problem was in the House and the extreme partisanship of those elected after the 2010 elections that said no deal. Yes. And part of, I want to I finish, I because part of it is that too many of our, you know, Kurt Vonnegut said the only way good defeats evil is that the angels have to be better organized than the mafia. And it is no different than in politics. I've watched too many people that I respect hand a megaphone to the more strident voices for the reasons you mentioned in their primary, and they won't stand up and fight. But, but, but Mary, and, but, and, and, let me Mary. just say though, because I was there. This is good. And I want to see fine. You, yeah. you <laughs> we'll, we'll let it go a little longer. That's fine. You're absolutely right up to the point, because Boehner did have his caucus that voted him down, but then the president wouldn't lead. Bill Clinton would have. Bill Clinton did in welfare reform. He did lead, even with cr criticism from his own party, and welfare reform has been an outstanding success. But President Obama didn't jump in. I, would, it can't, I mean, this isn't here to do whether Obama, it'll be interesting to see how much the Republicans love the Clintons once we nominate Hillary. You know, because I think, you know, all we hear now is that, boy, well, if the Clintons were here, we loved them. He led so much, y'all led him right up to impeachment. But uh, yeah, that, it isn't about, look, we, we know where we are now. I do think, I mean, you don't have, I mean, and it's, it's 
I don't think it's instructive or helpful to believe this is a Democratic and a Republican primary phenomenon. You asked if Bill Bradley could be elected today in a Democratic primary, he absolutely could. In a Republican primary, even Kay Hutchinson would have. I mean, I have so many friends that it was painful for me to watch them campaigning in the Republican primaries because they were contorting themselves no, knowing, to be knowing somebody the trouble that they, they were. I'm hearing and they from, didn't win. I'm hearing Mayor Reed, Senator Bradley, from Ambassador Kirk and Senator Hutchinson, two things that are interesting. The idea that maybe the president is an issue and maybe the extremist, I assume you mean the Tea Party, yeah. Tea Party uh, control of the House. If suddenly we woke up tomorrow and the Tea Party was gone, and suddenly we woke up tomorrow and the president was gone, would everything resettle? I mean, is that, is that the issue? Do we have to wait out the next two years for the president to be gone and for someone to replace him? Do we have to hope that maybe that for the you know, your purposes, not I'm not a, that the Tea Party is no longer a factor in politics for this to get resolved? Mayor Reed. Um, my sense is, is that uh, the next two years are not going to be productive. But I, I think that there's something to be said for holding the gains that have been made. But from the country standpoint, I don't believe that the country is going to be moving, uh, as the ambassador referred to, our vital national interests. Right. What I'm thrilled about is, um, as I listen uh, to uh, my colleagues and people that I respect a great deal, everybody is coming to the conclusion, you got to beat these people. Who are, the, can, who, we, are we, the, who are these people? I think people who are extremists and who will not cut deals. I think they reveal themselves during negotiations around the debt limit, where the full faith and credit of the United States of America is put at risk. You have to reveal yourself. You have to vote on those matters. I think that they reveal themselves when they won't allow major infrastructure bills to, be, to move through the United States. And the most troubling part of all of it for me is, is that we couldn't get folks. This is where I moved from trying to persuade to taking a position that you have to develop your own career, put people up who can beat them. The last six years were the worst years that the country has faced since the Great Depression. And we couldn't come together doing the worst of it to pull the country together. So that's where I came to the conclusion that we're going to yeah. have to beat them. So these people who are, they're the ones who stand up right. on fundamental issues and take extreme positions, and we know who they are, and we should go after them. You need to knock them out. I mean, it's the systemic question, Senator Bradley, is, is the problem Congress and the president, or is the problem this Congress and this president? The problem is structural in our democracy. It is. That's what the problem That's is. Right. So the question is, how do, you, how do you harness the power of no for progress as opposed to paralysis? That's the question. And that's the beauty of this little idea. You have three very specific ideas that are fundamental to our democracy. They are in bill form. There is no dispute. Yeah. The caucus may or may not agree. The line of six has this not, that nuance, this not. Here it is. This, these are the three things. And then when the people come to you to support no, 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 unless you do these things that will liberate the democracy. We're going to open it up for questions here in a minute or two. Uh, Senator Bradley, you're done in politics, right? Yeah, I am done. Senator Hutchinson, you're, you're done. <laughs> done. Ambassador Kirk, you're done. I'm done. Uh, Ambassador Huntsman, there's a rumor Maybe. floating around on social media that you're looking at running for president again in 2016. Maybe it's an independent. Are you going to do that? <laughs> yeah. Here's... Here's another minor problem we have in politics today. Yeah. So I get a call from the reporter asking, I said, I have zero interest. And I wake up to this headline the next morning. And, say, and, then, and then all the articles that are spawned by that. So there has to be a sense of accuracy in the reporting that's done. Please, please don't set too high a bar here. Come on. So the answer is no, you're not going to run. You're done. No, you're, you're no, totally no done. plans. Um, do you think, Mayor, when you look at the world that these folks have been you in? You all see world... how good Evan is. You see how he got that? Wow. I got it out. Um, Mayor, you see the world that these folks have been in? Yes. They're perfectly content to be on the other side of it. Yeah. Do, you, do you think to yourself, yeah, maybe I chose the wrong line of work? I don't think that at all. I love it. I smile when I fight. I believe that, I believe that the opportunities I've been given are worth it. And I think if you don't have some folks that really care about what we have, then you're going to have something that's really bad. Yeah. And I'm going to start using uh, uh, Representative Ambassador Kirk's quote, 
Um, it'll, it'll replace our smile when I fight the organized angels versus the bad people, whatever that was. But I, yeah. Yeah. The angel, but angels have Kurt, to be more. Kurt Vonnegut, he'll send you a copy. Of I'm, I'm, I'm going to get the tape. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, you know, that's what I hope also comes out of this conference. You know, the, the, the high level of thinking. Yeah. Saw the same thing I was, a week or so ago was at the World Economic Forum in Tianjin. We were talking about circular economies. You can talk about all of that, but if you don't have an executive that will implement and execute on what these folks are talking about, it's just not going to happen, which right. is why I think uh, that we got to be about performance and transparency, and you got to have people that want it. I love it. Yeah, I, I love campaigns. I love debating. I love the fight. Right. Um, as long as we do it in a way that moves our cities, our states, and our countries forward. Yeah. So Ambassador, I just want to make one point. I'm Please. not, when you asked where we're going to run again, you didn't ask that I'd given up on politics. I love the body politics. I'm yeah. just of that generation that I believe that it's better to leave the stage when people still think warmly of you than be. I mean, there are two. No, I was influenced by, and I won't mention them, there were mayors that had to be scraped out of City Hall. Yeah. And I vowed not to be one of them. And having turned 60, I'm excited about helping the next generation of leaders. Most great change, whether it is a country, when you go back to Kay's point of leadership, just about every great revolution in the world was started by somebody in their 20s or 30s. It wasn't a bunch of 60-year-olds sitting around pontificating about how life used to be. So, I mean, I'm, I haven't given up on our country. Yeah. I, and I believe, and in spite of all the gloom we've done, you know, I would remind you, at least, and I know y'all say Obamacare, there are 8 million African Americans who have health insurance today that didn't have health insurance. And I will tell you, I believe, and... In case anybody's looking, since we're going to talk about leadership, I believe the stock market, the Dow, is higher than it's ever been in history. Our country was growing at a negative 4%. Our economy is now growing at a plus 2 to 3%. Our employment rate has been cut. Our, our unemployment rate has been cut in half. Now, you go back to opportunity loss. What infuriates me is what had we not had this extreme partisanship? could we be doing? And so I haven't given up on it, but I think we're going to need a new generation of leaders who maybe have a little more chutzpah, a little more fight, and going and willing to make sure we're doing it. But thank God we've got progressive mayors and governors that are keeping the country moving in spite of what's happening in Washington. Questions from the audience now, please. We'll have, uh, come on, get up and come to the aisles. We'll take as many as time permits. We'll go back and forth, back forth. And when we have to end, I'll apologize to those of you who couldn't call on. Ma'am? And then, sir. Okay. So this is just directed at the entire panel. Even though Cong Congress is wildly unpopular, the incumbent reelected uh, rate is extremely high, right. and that's because while people disapprove of Congress as an institution, they really like their own representatives because right. they'll do casework and get pork barrel spending. So the question is, how can we reconcile this gap where people want Congress to be productive but won't vote out of office their incumbents, which are contributing to the dysfunction within Congress? Senate Senator Hudson, great question. Senator Hudson, let me ask you to take that. The English system puts, uh, the parties put their slates together and they don't run from their own districts necessarily. They're assigned uh, as the party leaders with the mission, with a clear message to be the candidates that w would stand for election, and so they run on the policies that they're putting forward. That would be one way to have uh, more of a reform, is if, obviously, if people voted just on how someone uh, votes and what they say they're going to do, and didn't look at personalities, but that isn't what we've done. We do vote on personalities and people we like, um, but if we had slates that were not tied to um, the local area as much and instead had the mission of the party uh, like that English system, I think we would then, I, I think it is important, and this is also to Ron's point about having a third party. I think shaping our parties so that they're not what they are today is very important. But I think the clarity of having two parties so that you campaign on what you're going to do and then you're held accountable by what you campaigned on can really only effectively be done 
with two strong parties, although I would reform from within the, both parties, frankly, uh, to be more willing to govern after the election. Ambassador, and then we'll And if the parties aren't providing what the people want, they're going to become irrelevant and go out of business, like any other purveyor of ideas out there. You bring up an excellent point, and it is 90% of incumbents getting reelected. So there's no pain or punishment associated with bad behavior. It's an era of no consequences. So people continue to behave badly in Congress, and there's no, there's no punishment for it. I, I would say a simple solution for that might be term limits. Uh, I've, I've, I've been on both sides of this argument, but I've, I've come to see the situation of political process moving so very, very quickly today. 1972, when I was 12 years old, 4% of exiting members of Congress went out to become lobbyists. The revolving door, today 50%. I'm guessing the percentage is higher today. 5-0. Five, 5-0. Zero. <laughs> five, zero. So, you know, why do people hang around longer than they should? Well, for all kinds of reasons, one of which might be your Rolodex gets a little bit bigger, so when you leave, you might have more to do. You might be a little more marketable. I think term limits would go a long way in cleaning out a lot but of the it, dead it, Is it, though, to, I, I want to come to the question, but is it what, what you're saying that where are the problem? Right? We get the government we deserve. If, we're, if we don't like what we see, and yet we continually make the same mistake over and over, then bad on us. Right? It's not, it, it's it not is, people in office, it's us. It, it is the person that goes, I used to be on the board of Chili's. It's the person that used to come into Chili's and always ask to see our low calorie menu, then hand it back to the server and order the big mouth burger with fries <laughs> and onion rings. I mean, and that's what we, we do. If you don't, I mean, would we district thing? These districts are so conservative, so you get rid of X mad person and replace them with a new. I mean, I think you've got to do some hybrid of what Senator Bradley and, and Governor Hudson Independent redistricting commissions, you. term limits, would be a great combination of things to clean up the situation. Sure. Thank you. And look at states that have people like Tom Harkin and Chuck Grassley elected from the same state. Or John Tower and Ralph Yarbrough, elected by the same electorate. It's, right. the, it's what she said. Sir. Uh, as Senator Hutchinson mentioned earlier, the, the most significant bill that has passed under the President Obama's administration, the Affordable Care Act, passed on a party line vote when the Democrats controlled both the legislative and the executive branch. And you think the continued resolution and more recently Syria's action, um, is this our new normal that? bills of consequence and significant pieces of legislation, are they going to be passed when there's single party control of the executive and legislator, or there's a threat to the country's um, either financial or existential? It's the only time that we're going to get things done when we have a president of a party and congressional majorities of the same party. It's going to be... Hope. I hope not. Yeah. I hope It's going to be the case if we don't do something about it. We've got to own it, and we can't get weary, but... This is a clear problem with a solution that's achievable by all of us. And what's going to happen is people are getting increasingly frustrated, and I think that the solution is primarily going to be driven by cities. I don't think it's a mistake that you know, Mayor Bloomberg wanted to be mayor of New York or that Rahm Emanuel left being the White House chief of staff. You've got to have a farm team that comes from consensus building yep. and then goes on to other offices, and they have to have a foundation of having been consensus builders. And I think this problem is going to be an eight to 10 year problem. Before Senator Bradley, isn't the flip side of what was just asked that if we have Republican control of the Senate this November, which may well happen, Republican control of the House, but in neither case a veto-proof majority, nothing is going to get done for two years. Right? Congress passes things, President like it veto. President wants to get something passed, both parties are uh, Republicans are control both houses, nothing, nothing happens. You won't have a situation like that. You'll have nothing for two years. I think that's quite probable. Now, one change took place in the Senate in terms of uh, the ability to filibuster federal judges. Uh, the Senate changed the rule and went down. Result of that is President Obama has gotten a lot of judicial appointments through, particularly in the appeals court, that will have a far-ranging impact on American democracy. I was. Uh, with a regulator not so long ago in the financial area. And the regulator said, we have to be careful about how we uh, write our opinions because we know it has to get through a particular circuit. And we know the circuit is hostile, right? And so we have to pay more attention to 
cost-benefit analysis. And he then went on to say that when he has a, in this case it's a Republican, when he has a Republican member of his commission, it's not unheard of for the Republican member to read into the record a statement that will form the basis of a lawsuit down the road. So what that does is simply create greater importance on who is in the judiciary, not just the Supreme Court. And I think that President Obama's long-term impact could very well be on the courts. And there. Council member. Thank you. Uh, Senator Hutchinson, one of the reasons that we miss you as senator so much in San Antonio is that we know that if we had had an open primary system in this state, you would be running for re-election as governor this year. And uh, either that or we'd still be in the United States Senate. But let me ask you this question. It, it is no accident, I think, in spite of Mayor Reed's thoughtful suggestions, that even though we've had a half dozen charismatic mayors over the last 30 years, none of them has been successful in achieving statewide office other than Carol Keaton, Rylander, et cetera. Uh, and and that, that suggests that mayors, no matter how close they are to the grocery store of the people, uh, don't uh, position themselves for state leadership. You made a very thoughtful suggestion about open primary. Number one, do you think that's a realistic option? And number two, your point about ad hoc coalitions within the United States Senate uh, on specific issues, would you recommend that the Senate have more of those in the future to get things done? I, first of all, uh, I think the revamp of the primary, is it doable in our Texas legislature? I don't know. Uh, by the way, I'm so glad that you're in the San Antonio City Council. Um, I, I do think we would have a a much, I think we'd have a better political atmosphere because I think the harshness would uh, dissipate if you had open primaries because you would have to appeal to the broader uh, spectrum. And I think a lot of the toxicity in politics is because of these hard-edged primaries. Um, so I think that if the legislature would do it, it would give us a much stronger, more stable um, political system, and I, I, I'd like to see more states do it. Um, on the uh, issue of the, the, the gangs in the Senate, they've been very effective because they have, they've made a, a bond and they've stuck with it. Uh, like in, any of us who've been in office have made promises uh, in making negotiations. We've said we would do certain things. And even when it's hard to keep that promise, and I'll tell you who was the past master at it was Barbara Jordan when she was in the Senate, state Senate. She would make a deal, and even if her favorite project came up and she had agreed not to vote to, to bring it up because she had something more important to her, she would stick with her deal. And that's what made her credible and allowed her to go to Congress and, and be one of the leading politicians of Texas. I think it's a good thing when you have a group that says, we're equal numbers and we know we have to do this and we're going to make the agreement that's more important than anything else we're doing and they stick to it. I do, I'd like to see more of the gangs on the different issues. And on, uh, it, it could be judicial candidates, yeah. that was one. Uh, but it can be social security reform as well. It could be uh, national security. Uh, uh, thank you. Ambassador Crick, the council member makes a good point. We've had over the last 10 years in Texas, three big city mayors run for state. We live office. in Texas. We don't need to over, I mean, over yeah. look, the, the urban areas are blue. In fact, you could argue deep blue. Yeah. But we're in a red state. Right. And so it doesn't matter if you're Harvey Gantt. So you're the nonpartisan mayor of Dallas, doesn't matter. You, 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 you are. I mean, it, look, I, I think it's pretty obvious. I think pretty highly of Barack Obama. Had he run for the United States Senate from Texas, he would have lost. But it's going to change. And the Republicans need to realize that when Texas turns blue, it ain't going to turn back. I think Secretary And that's when we're going to have to. But we have an opportunity to not just have it be with the hammer. 
that we're blue, but there are leaders. We need more people like Kate Bailey Hudson that'll work with me, that'll work with Hillary Clinton to pass a law so you could have an Irma Rung Hill girls' school and not be demonized for it in their parties. Back to your point, we've got to celebrate the deal makers, and we've got to all do a better job of standing up. And, you know, I, I, Kay, when you ran, I so wanted you to go stand out at DFW Airport and the ship channel and say, here's your GD set aside. You know, it's called jobs. It's called Hobby Airport. It's called DFW. It's called the ship channel. And none of those would have happened had we not had you working for Texans. But we got to be willing to stand up and do that. You, you I, uh, might not have said GD. She would not have. Probably. She's too poor. <laughs> <laughs> you, you don't get to be the head of the Texas Clarifying. What you okay. didn't. <laughs> I think this idea goes right along with the idea of organizing angels. But I wanted to get this panel's thoughts on the recently funded Mayday Pack, which is oh, this is Larry Lessig's uh, deal. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. The idea a pack to end all packs. Well, you don't like. Who said they don't like pack? You said you don't like packs. Bill. Right? Did you, uh, John. Ambassador Huntsman, you're not a big PAC super, fan? Super PACs. Super PACs, yeah. Are, are, are super, the, the super PACs and disclosure of the funds that go into these big PACs, is that part of the problem? We haven't talked about transparency and disclosure. If these PACs are a fact of life, maybe what could be a different fact than we have right now is more transparency on who's funding them. What do you think about that? Transparency is good. Uh, what, what I object to is a small concentration of people funding everything. Right. It isn't that it's just the, the amount of money in politics. It's we've got 99 people in the country who basically are funding it all. And that right. doesn't speak the long-term healthy prospects. So if Sheldon democracy. Adelson had given you all that money instead of Mitt Romney, that wouldn't have been okay with you? <laughs> He'd be a fabulous human being. Yeah. <laughs> no. I mean, seriously. No, seriously. Now, it, I mean, a lot of people, I'm not suggesting this is you, but a lot of people who complain about one person giving a lot of money they're complaining because they were not the recipient of it. No, I think it's, no. I think it's horrible. No. Uh, I, I, you know, you can't run for office without appreciating the grassroots small contributions that come in that speak to your message. Right. And when you can generate a lot of grassroots contributions, that's a good thing. When you get 50 million bucks put in your bank account from one source, that's a horrible thing. So when you run as an independent in a couple of years, you'll right, capture right, right. contributions at 250. Right. That's what it is. I'll come after you for the super. Okay, good. Yeah. Okay, I'm going I'm to probably go a couple minutes longer just because we started late. Sir. Good afternoon to you. My name is Aslan Khalid from San Antonio College. Uh, Senator Bradley, you would have made one heck of a president in this country. Yeah, And I told you outside. My question to you is that in course of our nation, we have had many times that the women have tried to start their own political party. What do you think in this junction our, in our country that women will start their own party? There are more than half of the population. <laughs> because these days we talk about soccer mom, hockey any, mom, a Walmart mom. Any chance, all moms. Any chance about, uh, that, that women will start their own political party? He's asking me. <laughs> I think I did hear ask? Asking the panel. I have an opinion, but ask Kay. You want to, write, want to say something, Kay? Senator or is that part of the Kay? problem, me deferring to Kay? Senator Hutchinson, what would you think? Are you asking if women should should or if they should, will? Form a, should. should form their own should. political party? Oh, I, I believe that women ought to work within the party systems and work for what is their most important issue. Uh, the, the diversity of opinion among women is at least as large as the diversity of opinion right. among men. Otherwise, but in many issues, but, but in many issues think, they're united. Otherwise, think of your life in the discussion with your wife or husband, right? The diversity of opinion. Or your daughter. <laughs> we're going to take one more, I'm afraid, and then we're going to have to go because we have Senator Cruz coming next. Uh, you said that we get the de government we deserve, which makes me very sad here in Texas. Um, <laughs> So what I'm wondering is, what would you recommend with this collection of intellect and experience? What would you recommend to improve the voting record in this state, which is pretty pathetic? To get people to turn out to vote, you're saying? How? Yeah, to turn out to vote. All right, so let's make it a last question for all of you. We have a voter turnout problem in the state of Texas, 51st out of 50 in 2010, <laughs> dead last, 48th in 2012. We have a, an abysmally low voter turnout for a state that has such a uh, uh, high stake in everything that's going on in the country. 
What is the best tool to get people motivated to turn out? We'll go this way and end with Mayor Reed. Same-day registration and uh, not passing state laws that discriminate against voters. You're talking about voter ID? Yeah. Voter ID. Senator Hudson. I just think that uh, people who disagree with the kind of government they have have to understand that it is their responsibility to vote. So there's an education that needs to take place. These things, it, this stuff matters. A motivation. A motivation. Know, militant moderates. Militant moderates. <laughs> uh, ambassador. We're, we're the most highly advanced country from a technology development standpoint, but voting today is like last century. Right. Simplify, 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 and put it online. Ma ma online voting. Yeah, right. <laughs> ambassador. I'm, I'm going to put it back on the audience. I grew up right across the freeway from here, I went to a little bitty church, the Church of the New Testament, that my uncle started. Every Sunday, we recited the same Bible verse all of my life. God so loved the world. We said it so many times, the kids would laugh and roll our eyes. And one Sunday, my brother leaned in my ear and he said, Ronald, you know what that means. And I said, what? He says, God so loved the world, he didn't send a committee. And let me tell you, you it, it worked then, it'll work now. You get off your butt, call your friends, organize, get them registered, get them out to the polls. Nothing drives me crazier than the fact that we don't vote. We have no one to blame but ourselves. Organize, vote, knock on doors, and we can turn this state around tomorrow. Mr. Mayor, last word on what do we do to get people to turn out to vote? Get a candidate that will inspire people to turn out and vote. That is? A candidate, candidate, candidate. So many people are, are using excuses and coming up with different reasons because of the difficulty of politics not to run. People in communities know who should serve. We've got to go back to a time. We know who the most talented, who the most capable are. You've got to go find those special individuals and encourage them and give them what they need to get out here and take their shot. Candidate, candidate, candidate. Candidate. When we have special candidates in the United States of America, on the Republican side and the Democratic side, people get inspired and they get out and vote. I love this panel for so much. Oh, my God. Uh, let's thank our panelists, Senator Bradley, Senator Hudson, Ambassador Hudson, Ambassador Kirk, Mayor Reed. We'll see you back with Senator Cruz in a few minutes. Thank you.